Welcome to the Poetic Resurrection Podcast, where we explore perceptions. How self-reflecting questions can give you a better understanding of self. I'm your host, Sonia Iris Lozada. Stay tuned. Our guest this week is Martina Reese Newberry. Martina has been writing for 60 years, a passionate lover of Los Angeles. She currently lives there with her husband, Brian Newberry, in Media Creative. Martina Reese Newberry's most recent book is Blues for French Roast with Chicory from Dearborn Editions. Martina Reese Newberry. Hi, Martina. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, Sonia, thank you so much for asking me. And it's so much fun to see you again. Oh, yes. For those of you that don't know, when I did my first reading of my poetry book, Martina was the guest poet. I didn't know that when I started talking to you and you were very supportive. And I, I want to say a thank you. That was It was easy to be supportive. It was good work. Oh, thank you. Thank you. So today we're going to discuss a wonderful poem that I love. It's from which, uh, Subsequence. From what book is Subsequence from? This is from Blues for Coffee with, sorry, Blues for French Roast with Chicory. Oh. There. You, I said it. Yeah. You have the best. Uh, yeah. Title. The book is Blues for French Roast with Chicory. I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So we're going to be honored right now because you are going to read Subsequence to us. Okay. I'd love to. As you said, the poem is called Subsequence. And the epigraph reads, I have brought you here so you will know forever the silences which are our beginnings. And that's from Evan Boland, wonderful Irish poet. Look here. My years don't make of me a footnote, not a semi-mystic or an elder woman poet, nor am I a poetess. Yes, indeed. Yes does not fit the largeness of my anger, the uncomfortable clarity of my voice. S's do not strafe your eyes with a battery of code words for passion. S's are not breathing, walking cauldrons of love, drive, death. They are not incendiary, fierce, judiciously choosing life no matter how ruinous it is no matter how terrifying it is, rather than a marshmallow death, strung out over years, seated pleasantly and unseen on a cushion. Listen up, keep your S's. My years are no indication of the violence to which I've testified, the wars I've detested, the poverty and ineligibility I fought unsuccessfully. I am not become unbeautiful because of my 70 plus years around the sun. I am not become anonymous or resigned. I began in silence, similar to S, no? Too many of us have, but I have not stayed there and I will not return there. That those which who have given me cause to regret have only done that one little thing. They have not killed me. 
if there is killing to be done, I will do it. Try me out. Read what I say. If I bleed, do not doubt it. You will drown. And that is beautiful. Thank you. Thank I you. love that poem. Thank you very much. So now, since you discuss age, what do you think is the stigma of age? Why do you think society has this kind of judgment? So many of society's biases and judgments just stink out loud, actually. And the ageism is right up there with the worst of them. Women in general have been at the lowest end of the totem pole throughout time. And they always have the same damn perceptions, the same expectations. Women are the weaker sex, the less brainy sex, the less logical sex, and on and on and on and on. And at the top of that list, at the top of that negative list, is age and beauty. If we're old, we're ignored or and or considered unbeautiful. Mm -hmm. If we are unbeautiful, God forbid, in the ways that models and celebrities are, we are laughed at, we are pitied, and we are underestimated. Mm -hmm. It is a sociological thing. It, I will not say that it isn't getting better. It is getting better. It's not the best it could be. And I would like it to be a lot better. I saw there was an artist that I saw and he a photographer really and he took pictures of people of any of every age but he did beautiful black and whites and these black and whites and I have to admit I fall into the category wanting to look good and oh well sure age <laughs> and but he took pictures of the people and all the lines on their faces showed but it was done so beautifully I looked at these pictures like oh wow you would think all those wrinkles, but it just showed a bit of regalness and acceptance of self. And, and I love his photography because of that. I like, the, I like pictures like that, too. I, I, I like seeing pictures of women who have where it shows their dignity. There is a lot of beauty and dignity. Yes, beauty is. isn't beauty isn't just smooth skin or big eyes or skinny body. It, that isn't the only thing beauty is. Beauty is dignity and intelligence and patience and wisdom. Yeah. And that can be captured if photographers want to look for that. Yeah. And there's a self-confidence that comes across. Absolutely. That Absolutely. Is, yeah, I think self-confidence is beautiful straight across the board. Absolutely. I can't agree with you more. I think that is absolutely true. And if and self-confident women who hold themselves straight up and look you in the eye are beautiful. Mm -hmm. There's a stigma about being creative and being mature in age. How do you feel about the biases that older people are no longer creative or add any value to society? Some of us come into our creativity later in life because of jobs and parenting, all sorts of things. Trying to, uh, trying to help somebody else finish their education. But I think, barring debilitating diseases, we come into our own with experience, with 
what we've learned just by being alive and being there for what does happen, for what may happen. Through the years, I think we learn what's important, what isn't so important anymore. And then that all goes into what we write and what we paint or sculpt or weave or whatever it is we do. Those experiences all are in that product and whatever it is we're putting out there. And I think that older writers and older artists just have the bonus of bringing with them years of what they've heard and seen and eaten and smelled and loved and didn't love. And if you've never had a broken heart, how do you put it into your writing? If you've never been poor, how do you put that into your writing? So I think older writers have that very much to give that plethora of experiences and just life, just being there. Yeah. So yeah, I think that's what I like so much about our more mature poets and painters. And, you know, they, they bring with them an entire, not just one world, but an enti- entire series of worlds that they've experienced throughout their life. <laughs> so, yeah. No, because a lot of them, I, you, could, you could see yes. their life in it when you read it. And it's almost like reading history but yet in a very artistic sense where it really connects. Yes, exactly. Exactly. I think, I think there's nothing wrong with, uh, I don't want to sound like there's anything wrong with, with young folks, young artists, because there isn't, they're wonderful. But I think no one should underestimate the power of years, the power of experience, the power of having had things happen to you and you happen to things. (laughs) Because there's what I like about the youth poets now, a lot mm. of them have made it popular again yeah. with the slam poetry yeah. and everything. I'm like, yes, you know, they brought it back. So I, I uh-huh. love slam poetry as well because there's an art to it. There's like a rhythm to it. And, and they bring their yes. life experience to that point. Yeah, there there's certainly is. Well, you, you must know I, know, I know not a lot about your history, but I know a little of it from your books and just from talking to you, you must feel that what you would have written 25 years ago is a great deal different than what you would write today and what you would say and 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 how oh you would gosh. see things and I mean it's it's only natural and look at I didn't read anything you wrote 25 years ago but I have seen what you write now and it's excellent it's wonderful you know what I notice when you're young let's say life is an arc and when you're young, you kind of like going partly through the arc, but as you get older, you yes, see the exactly. whole completion exactly. of it. So now right. I can see where exactly. I was. And you can you can use ago. that as a yardstick. You can say, I see where I was 25, 35 years ago. I see what I did then. And you can use that as a yardstick to say, is that where I want to be now? Was I what I wanted to be then? If I wasn't, how did I work my way out of it? And can I use that to work my way out of something else? And you know, yes. with history comes yes, knowledge. It, it does. Talking about that, you informed me before that you were shy until the age oh, of 50. God, so yeah, tell me I what was changed. so shy. I was one of those, I figured if I put my hand over my eyes, you couldn't see me. And I was, <laughs> I was just 
so shy. <laughs> the first book I ever wrote was called Lima Beans and City Chicken. Love the names, by the way. Thank you. The, some professors of the English department where I worked at Cal Poly Pomona threw me a party for this, for this book opening. And it was really sweet of them. And so I got there in plenty of time. But I sat out in front of that house in my car for 30 minutes until somebody came out for a smoke and saw me sitting out there and said, what are you doing out here? Come in and sort of escorted me in. I used to throw up before poetry readings. I just was so scared. was afraid everybody was thinking bad things about me or my hair wasn't right or the, they'll hate the poetry or whatever. And they, I was just scared to death. And then, I don't know, when I reached 50 or so, I guess because I'd had enough to experience around people I'd worked all my life and so I had co-workers and all that, I suddenly realized, I realized that for better or for worse, Nobody was really thinking about me. They, they really, I mean, not, not in that way. Not that, that just my mere appearance sent some shockwave through a crowd. I mean, it was just, I just realized everybody is trying minute by minute to keep their own shit together. And not very many people are interested in me or mine. And my first reaction is still reticence. I'm still a little shy. But I can push it to the side now, like I wasn't able to before. I guess it, I think it just came with meeting people and, and working. I used to, I, I always sort of worked behind a desk one way or another. And I used to say that desk was just so comforting because behind the desk, you're somebody else. Behind the desk, you're, you're competent. Uh, you look good. If you go to work, you probably look pretty good. It, behind that desk was great. And it was having to get in front of that desk that was the problem. But it did happen. And it, and it just sort of happened. I don't, can't even say I worked very hard on it. It was just sort of a realization that, hey, people have their own thing. And you're not that, you're just not that big a deal in their lives, no matter what you're doing. No, and what I realize with people, if they're coming to see you speak or perform of any kind, yeah. they just want you to be yeah, good. They, they just really, they want to be entertained. They want you to be good. They're not thinking, oh, her hair. They might say, oh, that hair is messy in their head for two seconds, but it's gone. They really just want you to be good. They want to enjoy their evening right. out. And well, you're an actress. Have you ever been shy? Or do you have, you know, like... Uh... No, I've, I've been shy. No, not, no, I've never been shy. But when I did theater and I was doing musicals, it was weird because right behind, there's like six inches to a foot between backstage and, and the stage. I had to be pushed onto the stage. Really? I was so terrified, but for some reason, once I got on that stage and everything, oh my gosh. <laughs> but just crossing from backstage to, to the stage was terrifying for me, but it's weird. Once I just crossed that, I was fine. And, and it was fun it, for me. I was going to say, and has it been fun? that way ever since for you? Or have you gotten over stage fright or... I don't think you ever get over stage fright. I've I've gotten better at it, gotten better at psyching myself into it, but it, it, yeah. it's terrifying. You know, you, you helped me with my reading. Oh, I so didn't even, it was my very first reading. You look like a pro. You didn't look like you needed any help. You look great. Oh, well, you know, there's the acting background. Well, see, there, there you go. You did great. Yeah, it was a pleasure to hear yeah. you. So, mm -hmm. thank you. Now I have another question for you. What do you think would help in clearing women's age perspective? What do you think would help 
because it's so ingrained in us to believe in a certain way. And I am guilty of that, mm -hmm. too. When I was younger, I said, oh, my God, when I get old, I don't want to get old. But if you don't want to get old, that means yeah, you die. Right. <laughs> right. So I then I became then I kept saying, just let me accept my age with grace because I don't want to look like getting all this plastic surgery. And and then you don't right. even look like yourself anymore. How do you think that that would help? Would I in think clearing at, that the, age? at the very most basic, I think we as women have got to get tougher in mind and heart. I am not saying mean, I'm saying tougher. Mm -hmm. We need to start demanding respect for who we are and for what we do from our families, our coworkers, our spouses, our friends, everyone. We need to start demanding respect. My husband's grand great-grandmother, I think his great-grandmother was a little bitty lady. And when she was chastising someone or was angry with someone, she'd pick up her fist like this and she'd say, smell it and tremble. Um, <laughs> and we need to do that. We need to say, smell me and tremble. Get part of me and be aware of who in the world I am and what I do. We need to be able to say, behave yourself to people who put us down, who make light of what we do who call what we do a nice hobby. I can't tell you how many times I've been asked that call that, you know, they say, oh, well, it's a nice hobby. You know, it's work. And, <laughs> and how many books do you have out now? That's a hobby. Yeah, it's, and as you know, it's work. It's not no, a yes. hobby. It's work. And I think we need to demand that we need to be strong and staunch of character. We need to just by our attitude, we don't have to yell at anybody or shake our yeah. fist like Brian's great grandmother, but but we do have to, I think, change the way we give and receive information in such a way that they see us as strong and as staunch and as not willing to always back down or not to give up everything in order to nurture. I think we have to just get tougher and we can ask for society's change and we can do what we can to change it. We can raise our sons to respect women, we can raise our kids to respect everybody, to respect the arts, to respect anybody that does art. We can do that. But the big change has to come from inside of us where we say, I'm a grown up now and I work at what I work at, whether it's writing or painting or sculpting. I work at what I do and I have respect for it and you need to have respect for it too. You don't have to like it, but you do have to have respect for it and you have to have respect for me. I think a lot of that comes from how we perceive ourselves and how much we value ourselves at the same yes, time. Absolutely. Because if we don't value ourselves, it's really weird. If you're happy, people can sense it. If you're confidence, people can sense it. If you feel you have value, people give you value. And that's the hard part is breaking through perceptions of what somebody else might have. And clarifying who you are, that you are valuable. I find everybody's valuable. You just have right. to And we have to be to responsible that. things that are good in us. We have to be responsible to grow them. We have to be responsible mm -hmm. for our own education, for learning, for reading, for listening, for getting in touch with other people. We have to, we have to grow those things and not ever stop growing them so that we have something to bring to the table. So we always have something to bring to the table. Yes. What do you 
feel that instead of behaving demure and not stressing with the importance of being, how does poetry have that hear me mood? Poetry is about hear me. It's poems and stories tell the reader or the, the listener, this is how I see it. This is how I feel it. This is how I work with it. This is how I sense it. Come with me. Come with me and see that. And our work constantly invites others into our hearts and souls, into our truths and our lies, into our dreams and our nightmares. It's a pretty vulnerable and rather wonderful thing of us to do, actually, is to say, come with me and I'm going to show you how human I am and you can see how human you are because these are things you've experienced or these are things you've felt. So I think that's what Hear Me is all about, at least for me. That's what it's all about is that I would like you to see it how I see it and maybe be find a relationship to it in your own life. Seeing it uh, and hearing it. Have you ever had anyone come up to you and say, wow, I read your poem and it's exactly how I was feeling. You can touch someone and make them not exactly. feel alone. And along with that, you can show them that you felt alone too, that they were not alone and feeling alone, that all of us have those times when we just feel like we're totally on our own and have no one to back us. And I think you can show them that. I think one of the things about putting yourself out there with your art, you can get either one of those responses. I have had people come up to me and say, that sounds just like me, or I had that happen to me too. Thank you for writing about that. I never knew anybody else felt that way. And I've had that happen. I've also had people come up and say, you don't know what you're talking about. I've been oh. so, I mean, really, I have it. And they've, or they'll say, I read your stuff and it's just too dark and that's depressing. I don't want to read it. Uh, just, I don't, I don't think things are like that. And that's okay too. That's all right. If you see what I write, if you read what I write and even if it sets you off negatively, even if you say, God, that's dark. Okay, well, it is. It is. And I'm, and I'm inviting you to feel dark if you need to. If you want to feel dark, go ahead. That's okay. You can. And, and so either way, whether they say it brought them a, a smile or it made them be able to relate or whatever, if you read me and it causes some sort of stir in you, good. That's good. I, I find poetry normally is dark, is where you're willing and you feel you have the freedom to right. open up about things people don't normally talk about. I mean, that to me is poetry, is hitting upon things that hurt or make you laugh, but it's something that normally right. people don't I discuss. feel that a lot of times people have shared with me what they fear or what they worry about is what they don't talk about. Is what they, they don't. And they'll say, I read this book or that book of yours, and I, I didn't know anybody else worried about that. I mean, silly things, silly things like, you know, what if my, uh, what if my jacket tears on the way to work? Or what if I lose my purse? Or what if, you know, just things that you worry about on every single day level. What if somebody hates me? What if my good friend doesn't like me anymore? What if nobody will talk to me? Huh. And as you know, in the case of writers, what if nobody buys my books? You know, it's like, <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> but, but you know, it's funny. I was talking to somebody about what ifs. And what ifs I think are amazing for writing. They're not good for living in your life. 
because it's always in the future and never in the present. You know, we're always worried about what if, but I find what what is are amazing right. for being exactly. Able to I write. think I think you're right about saying what is. I think if you can say to yourself, well, I'm okay now. I'm not cold right now. I'm not hungry. I'm not party stricken. I'm not, I'm okay. I'm, I'm all right right now. And maybe, I don't know, maybe concentrate on that as you go through your life. I don't know. I certainly don't, th- I don't have the answers to it, but um, <laughs> I'm a worrier. So <laughs> I was a what if person and I still am a what if person because I, I found that anxiety is what if living in the future is what if. And I'm going to paraphrase one of my favorite quotes, and it's from Lao Tzu, is if you're depressed, you live in the past. If you have anxiety, you're living in the future. And if you're calm, you're in the present. Oh, I love that. Yeah, it's by Lao Tzu. He's one of my favorite. And I think I'm, I, it's one of the things I repeat often, but it's, that was me living in the, in the future. In the future. And, uh, yeah. Oh, I love that. That's really beautiful. I'm going to have to pick up my Lao Tzu and get refreshed on that. <laughs> <laughs> what is what do you think is the connection between age and beauty? Mm, age and beauty. Well, I think it's, I think one thing is that Americans in particular need to change their perceptions. I wrote a poem, kind of an ode to a woman named Catherine Walters, who mm-hmm. was a famous English courtesan uh, in the Victorian area. She was absolute uh, era. She was very famous. And she was considered, she didn't retire from being a courtesan until she was 80 years old. And until she was 80, she was sought after for not just physical attributes, although I'm sure early on she had those, but she was sought after for her intelligence, her charm, her humor, her political savvy, her basic good sense. And she was a sought after companion of royalty of wealthy businessmen, of artists, all kinds of people. And I think so many women have those same characteristics. They're aside from physical attributes and they need to have, we need as an American society to learn to pay attention to those qualities, to to all the qualities that make a, a person what they are, not what they look like. And I think that the, that the ageism I haven't traveled a lot, but I think ageism is more prevalent in in America than it is other places. I I worked in the foreign student office for years and years and years at Cal Poly Pomona. And so I got to talk with lots and lots of of students from, from other countries, just lots. And one of the things I noticed that was always with them that I didn't see in American students so much or hear in American students. You would hear these kids from foreign countries say, I need to go home and take care of my grandma. I need to go home and take care of my mother. I'm my mother and my dad and I, we live with my grandparents and we have, I, I take care of them on Fridays they, or Tuesdays or whatever, you know, just this absolute respect and a knowledge that that's what you're supposed to do is respect and respect your elders. And, you know, and it's one thing I, they would say things like, my grandma's the best cook in the whole world. My grandma watches my children while I go to school. My mother-in-law, I mean, they would just have all these wonderful things to say about these older people. And I think, I don't know what we do in this country to start that up in ourselves. You know what it seems like? It, it, because 
there's a lot of generations living under the same roof in many cultures. And I think that's where you become more accepting of age because they have value in your home. Exactly. And you're all under the same roof. I mean, I've known people that have like four generations under the same roof. Yeah, exactly. They demand, I think there is a certain expectation in other cultures that older people always have something to offer and that they always deserve respect. They are treated that way. And actually they, for the most part, a lot of them anyway, behave that way. You respect me or you're going to, you're going to hear about it. <laughs> you're going to get a nasty. Yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> some of them are literally and some of them That's are not. Correct. That's right. I did want to ask you a question about EST, E-S-S, <laughs> and how it feels to have our value diminished with the ESS. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That damn S feels like a leaden condescending pat on the head is what it feels like. It's literally the suffix to identify things as smaller, as less. Yeah. I -hmm. don't regard mature women's art in any way smaller or less important or better or worse than any younger or prettier or more malleable person. Can you imagine? Okay. Can you imagine calling Mary Cassatt a paintress or Frida Kahlo a paintress? Really? Uh, yeah. Margaret Bork White, uh, was she a photographer? Dorothea Braby, was she an illustratess? Amanda Crow, a wood carvist? I mean, for God's sake, it's got to stop. We're not S anything. We're not smaller anything, regardless of our stature, regardless of what your height is or your weight or whatever. We are not S's. We're not cute little things. We're not less than other artists. It, Painters paint, writers write, poets write poetry, sculpting, sculptors sculpt. How I put, what is the sense of putting an S on the end of that so that the person always knows just by their, they're named, that they're less than. We're not less than, we are not. We are just artists trying to get along, trying to do the thing, trying to to share our most vulnerable parts with other people. We are not S's. No, and there's a lot. I mean, I've even had guys come up to me because one of the taboos was, you know, women got raped, but men, you just, you don't talk about that. And they've come up to me and said, you know, we write these poetries, but it's it's easier hearing from a woman so we don't feel so alone. Oh, that's cool. They don't want to talk about it, but it happens. Oh, to you better does. Yeah, children get molested, male or female. That's right. That's right. It was something that I, I've heard them say, and I'm like, oh, because then, you know, you make them, they, they come across so loving. Yeah. And, and most people would think of that as an act of uh, weakness, and it's not. No, it is Vulnerability not. is not weakness. No, absolutely isn't quite the opposite yeah. strength. It's very, sometimes you have to really have a, a stiffened spine to be vulnerable. Because you know how people might react to it. Yes, that. right. So Martina, tell me, you are fabulous. I love Thank always you. talking with I you. I love talking with you. How, <laughs> thanks. How can people get a hold of you? Oh, well, let's see. My website is martinanewberry.com. On my website, there's a bookstore, there are poems on there, there are reviews. Uh, there's a way to order books if you want to. 
I'm also, if you, if you can buy a book from me off the website, if you want, or you can buy it from dearbrookeditions.com, which is my wonderful, faithful, ever hopeful publisher, <laughs> who I just, whom I just adore for his absolutely incredible generosity. He, he's wonderful. So you can buy from him. That's Deerbrook at dearbrookeditions.com. Can you give us your website again, just in case someone has? Oh, sure. It's martinanewberry.com. And uh, that has, I think that probably has enough information on it. You can get in touch with me if you want. You can, there's a contact page. There's a bookstore. You can pretty much get what you want from there. You can pretty much get to me from my, from my website. Thank you so much. You are a precious poet and a precious person. Thank you for having me, Sonia. Oh, thank you. Thank you for listening to the Poetic Resurrection Podcast. Please visit us and subscribe to our newsletter at PoeticResurrection.com for the latest information and updates. Next week, we will discuss Perceptions of Joy with Barb Moses from High Five Leadership.